Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Graziano, an assistant professor of religion at the University of Northern Iowa. Michael is the author of Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion, and the History of the CIA, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. In this book, Michael examines the dangers and delusions that ensued from the religious worldview of the early molders of the Central Intelligence Agency. He argues the religious approach to intelligence by key OSS and CIA figures like Wild Bill Donovan and Edward Lansdale was an essential and overlooked factor in the establishing of the agency's concerns, methods, and understandings of the world. In a particular sense, this was because the Roman Catholic Church already had a global network of people and safe places that American agents could use to their advantage. But more tellingly, as Michael shows, American intelligent officers overly inclined to view powerful religions and religious figures through the framework of Catholicism. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, as you said, I'm, I'm working here at the University of Northern Iowa. My research and teaching focus a lot on the relationship between religion and national security. And that's sort of really where I find my home in the kind of broader subfield that I think of as American religious history, which is mostly what I focus on. I did my PhD in American religious history at Florida State University, and so very much sort of straddling the divide between history and religious studies. Yeah, and 
Before diving into your book, could you tell us how you came into this particular project? What made you want to look at the CIA and religion? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's kind of in a very roundabout way. I discovered it completely by accident. So my original plan, because this book came out of my dissertation and my original plan for the dissertation was looking at more about U.S. legal history because I do a lot of work on religion and law. And I was really interested in the history of anti-Catholicism in uh, state Supreme Court cases. And so anyway, as I was doing some background reading on that, for all sorts of various reasons, I was working on some stuff in the Vietnam era, and I stumbled upon the story of Tom Dooley, who features in the book and some of the CIA's activities in Vietnam, basically decided that this was far more interesting than the stuff that I was already working on. And so why not sort of um, dig into that? And that's what I did. And so I kind of poked at it and this whole story unfolded. And so I feel really fortunate because it was a lot of dumb luck for sure. Yeah, it was it's really interesting people you're citing in the book, such as scholars like Bruce Lincoln and Jonathan Z. Smith, who you don't often see brought up in conversations of histories about Catholicism. Um, So they might be foreign to some of our listeners. I wanted to ask what theories and approaches did you bring to this research project? Yeah, Bruce Lincoln, uh, Jonathan Z. Smith, those were folks who I read early on in my graduate career. um, And I think their ideas proved to be really formative on a lot of the stuff that I was reading and and interested in. But also, I mean, just I think how I see the field of religious studies and the kind of work that we do broadly. I mean, I think in terms of the most specific stuff that they really brought to this book, uh, I think it just, I mean, really, it just shaped the kinds of questions I was asking. So specifically stuff about thinking critically about the category of religion, um, thinking about things like the world religions paradigm, where really I'm leaning on the work of other important scholars. And, and really, I think in some ways, uh, more than Lincoln and Smith, um, Tomoko Masazawa is someone whose work is just sort of totally transformed the way I uh, think and, and research. And I think her influence is all over this book. But yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, people like Smith and Lincoln, I think for folks you know who aren't familiar with those scholars, when they're reading my book, I think they'll see the influence in things like my attempts to sort of historicize the category of religion and think carefully about what that word, what the category meant to the historical actors that I'm looking at and sort of seeing the way that religion can be used as a tool to accomplish certain tasks as not something limited to the scholar study, actually, right, but something that people all around the world are doing all the time. Um, And sort of one of the arguments of my book, I think, is that paying attention to that is important. Yeah. And so that kind of leads us perfectly into my next question, right? We're, we're starting to dive into your book now. You describe an approach that the OSS developed and that the CIA later adopted called the religious approach to intelligence. And this has a major impact throughout your book. So what is this approach and how did these organizations apply it? So the religious approach to intelligence is a name that the Office of Strategic Services came up with during World War II to talk about the ways they were trying to pursue relationships with religious institutions, especially the institutional Catholic Church. So in the book, I use the religious approach to intelligence to frame both 
the OSS's work during World War II, and then the OSS, which is kind of the like spiritual predecessor to the CIA, which gets established after World War II. And so as I'm looking at the religious approach to intelligence, I'm really sort of placing it alongside two broader historical developments in American history at the time. One, thinking about an increased popular interest in world religions, both in terms of pop culture, but also in the ivory tower. Um, and then also a renewed focus on religious pluralism, especially the changing place of religious minorities in American religion and law. And so for the book, the religious approach to intelligence was basically the idea that these American intelligence officers had starting in World War II, that wherever you found religion around the world, sort of wherever, wherever you could put your finger on it, religion was essentially the same. Um, it was going to be something that supported human liberty and freedom. It was going to be pro-democratic and open to capitalism, to free markets, um, and also fundamentally pro-American. And right, and this was going to be because, although they didn't use this language, the kind of shared core or shared essence um, that all religions and religious traditions were presumed to have. And so in the book, I sketch out basically three big influences this has on American intelligence operations during World War II and the Cold War. The first kind of building off of just what I was saying now is that they saw religion as kind of like a universal translator. If you didn't have the language work, if you didn't have the sort of cultural studies work to um, get on the ground in a particular country to be able to work there, you could just approach it through religion. So if you could figure out the kind of religion that people had in a particular country and how that religion worked, the idea was that this provided a really easy in to figure out how to work with folks. Part of this is stuff that was unique to the intelligence agencies, but also part of this is, you know, larger things happening in American culture. You know, the the sort of cliched phrase that comes to mind that I'm sure some of your listeners have heard is when people talk about religions and they say, oh, well, like different religions are, you know, different ways up the same mountain or blind men touching an elephant or, you know, whatever. You can choose your cliche of choice. And in terms of thinking about sort of equality before the law or respect, right, those are, I think, uh, very useful and um, sort of affirmative ways to think about religion. But in terms of just the you know history of religion, the idea that all religions are the same or share the same content is just factually incorrect. Um, you know, they ask different questions, they supply really different answers, they understand the world in really different ways. Um, and so, this idea that religion was a universal translator was something that both, I think, encouraged interest in the religious approach to intelligence among intelligence officers, but also something that was eventually uh, going to get them in trouble. Um, and then the other two sort of parts of this briefly are just that um, in addition to sort of being a universal translator, intelligence officers assumed through the religious approach that the world's religions would be natural allies to the United States in part because of this shared core or essence that made them um, friendly to American aims. And then finally, um, in the book, I track how the religious approach boomerangs and what starts as an attempt to access religious people and institutions around the world becomes a way to manage um, religious diversity for the purposes of national security at home, especially with American Catholics. Right. Yeah. And it was really interesting because the first group or the first religion, the central intelligence or the OSS are using as a template is Catholicism and its relationship, their relationship, I should say, with the Vatican. So as you say in your book, during World War II, we see this relationship develop uh, between the Vatican and specifically the OSS director, William Donovan. 
Can you tell our listeners about that relationship and how it developed? Yeah, so William Donovan was the first and only leader of the OSS. The organization gets um, taken apart after the war. But Donovan was a Catholic. Uh, He's from New York, and he was something of an oddity. He was a Republican, a New York Catholic, who tried unsuccessfully multiple times to be a politician. And to make a long story short, his kind of combination of his political and religious identity gave him no end of trouble. And so throughout his kind of earlier professional career, he experiences in a very real way kind of lived anti-Catholicism, like what it meant to sort of be Catholic in a very real way, which had nothing to do with sort of religious meaning or belief or whatever, right? He encountered it as a professional obstacle. And so when he gets made leader of the OSS by FDR in World War II, one of the things he brings to the job is, I think, a more nuanced understanding of both of religious institutions, but also of the kind of consequences or possibilities, perhaps, of religious identity, again, more than just something about what people believe or do or um, things like this. And so he was convinced early on that it made sense for U.S. intelligence officers to work with the Vatican because he saw the Vatican as a kind of central node in this international information network that would provide a ready-built source of intelligence for American intelligence officers if they could just kind of tap into it. And what I show in the book, and and one of the reasons I really became interested in him, is that although he does this, right, he does reach out to sort of Catholic leaders, um, right, and he is a Catholic doing this, which I think provides um, a kind of ready introduction in many cases. Even though this all happens, his motivations for working with the Vatican are fascinatingly wrapped up in all of the same broader anti-Catholic ideas that caused himself so much professional, uh, so many professional headaches earlier in his life. So, I mean, the very idea that the Vatican is this kind of like oasis of secret knowledge is itself, right, foundational to sort of anti-Catholic ideas about, you know, what the Vatican is, that they know everything about everyone everywhere all the time, that the Pope sits on this sort of like, you know, throne of a panopticon or something. And in reality, right, we know just historically that the Vatican was pretty much information blind during the war, and they were really cut off. Nonetheless, Donovan and the OSS were convinced of this. And so they spent a great deal of time, money, and effort to get in with the Vatican, to, you know, read their diplomatic pouches, to, you know, figure out what they knew. And this occasionally led them to, uh, really blinds them into believing things that were too good to be true. And so the one example that always comes to mind with this is for various reasons, they obtained these documents in Rome that they thought were going to be like uh, Japanese battle plans. And it was unclear why these would be in Rome and like the Roman Catholic Church. But nonetheless, this was what they were presented to be. Donovan gets very excited, right? They vet the information, it clears, it goes all the way up to Roosevelt, only to find out later that what they'd actually found were these fabrications. And they were sort of fabricated documents uh, by an unemployed Italian pornographer, no less, which like does not look good on the after action report. And so, right, they sort of then had to be like, oh, wait, oops about that, right? Like that's actually not what we thought it was. But the very idea, right, that you would just sort of be in Rome, in the Vatican and sort of stumble upon Japanese battle plans, I think, you know, only makes sense when you assume that they would be there in the first place. And that's a small detail perhaps, but I think a really important one to sort of suggest how these American intelligence officers like Donovan viewed the Vatican and Catholicism. Yeah. And going with how they viewed it, you say in the book that Catholicism was foreign enough to be worthy of study, but familiar enough to be interpretable. 
How does this lens of Catholicism affect the OSS's understanding of other religions, right? Like Buddhism, Islam, or Shintoism. What does the intelligence gathering look like when you see Catholicism as the template? I think, you know, Catholicism, Roman Catholicism looks really good on an organizational chart. I think that is a surprisingly big part of the answer to that question. It makes a nice, tidy pyramid. The Pope is on top. There's like branch offices. And for a lot of these intelligence officers who, A, knew very little about Catholicism and B, came from the corporate world, these kinds of visual aids, right, these really sort of small details had an outsized impact in how they understood what they were doing. And so I think the fact that to them, Catholicism lent itself to easy representations made it really attractive. Because the idea was if you could visually model this, the kind of actual institution of the religion, what you could then do was sort of figure out how it worked, who was responsible for what, like in any big institution, and then sort of use that as a kind of, you know, fill in the blank chart to understand other religions. And of course, you know, this leads to problems because what it ends up doing is it leads American intelligence officers to assume I guess for lack of a better word, that there were kind of known unknowns about other religions. For example, right, that like we know there is going to be a pope. We just don't know who it is, right? Or or it may not be called the pope, right? But it's something else in Hinduism. But of course, right, that doesn't make any sense. There's no Hindu pope. That's just not a thing. But the sort of insistence that other religions were going to fit this mold, I think kind of ironically both provided the main reason for this model's popularity within the intelligence community, but also one of the main reasons they ran into trouble with it down the line. Right. Yeah. And kind of leading away from the OSS and going into the CIA and the fifties now we're entering a, a new type of war. We're entering a cold war now with the Soviet union. And we're starting to see this rhetoric and discourse surrounding religion, especially with president Eisenhower. So how did Eisenhower use the religious approach and how did it change from the OSS version? So Eisenhower had worked with the OSS in World War II. He was Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, so he was familiar with the work they were doing. And one of the things you come away with when you read Eisenhower's letters after the war is he increasingly had an appreciation for covert operations because he thought they could avoid bloodshed. And so one of the things he was very eager to do in his presidency was to figure out what could be done covertly to sort of forestall another war. And at the same time, with his own religious views, he values religion for its social utility. And in the book, I I go to great pains to stress, right, that this doesn't say anything about sort of, you know, whatever he personally believed theologically. I'm not really particularly interested in that in the book. What I'm interested in is sort of how he understood religion for its social utility. He saw it as an aid to democracy. And this fits really nicely within developing ideas about the world religions paradigm that were already popular, both in American culture at the time and within the intelligence community. And so to make a long story short, Eisenhower and his administration came to really support the religious approach at a much larger scale than the OSS could in World War II, and really in a much more organized way than the kind of OSS's haphazard efforts during World War II. And in the book, I I look at a number of examples of this, but I think the two big ones are, first, the Eisenhower administration sets up a lot of the patterns about relations between the U.S. government and the quote-unquote Muslim world. 
and the idea that Islam is the sort of like formative determining factor when talking to Muslims, right? That it always comes back to Islam, which is not an assumption they make about sort of working with other people in other parts of the world, right? And the second big example is that Eisenhower, the Eisenhower administration tasks the CIA with helping to stabilize the situation in French Indochina, what will become North and South Vietnam, and particularly thinking about how to build up support for Vietnamese Catholicism in South Vietnam. And this effort, as I think about it, really becomes the crown jewel of Eisenhower's religious approach. It kind of combines all of the previous efforts and really systematizes the religious approach quite dramatically in Vietnam. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Right. And that kind of just perfectly leads us into my next couple questions. It's interesting to see this clear difference between how the intelligence organization announced or concealed their relationship with Catholicism, specifically as it relates to the relationships with Will Donovan and Tom Dooley with Catholicism. Could you tell our listeners about how they used or didn't use Catholicism to appeal to the American public? So in World War II, the OSS was both very interested in working with Catholic institutions, including the Vatican, but they also thought they had to hide those relationships, both from the public, but also from other parts of the U.S. federal government. So when I was in the archives and I was doing work in the National Archives, there are all sorts of very bizarre memos between like the OSS and the State Department, where the State Department is basically asking the OSS to like launder the information before they like Vatican info before they send it into the rest of the government, right, to sort of like get, I don't know, like the state, the stench of the Pope off of it or something, right, that they're concerned that, right, if it goes in sort of without being cleaned up, it's going to lead to charges that like the federal government is sort of, you know, working at the behest of the Pope, which is silly and, and whatever else we might say about it. But that was one of the big concerns. And so they're concerned about the OSS is concerned about this during the war. And I think one of the things that my book shows pretty clearly just by looking at the documentary record is that as the war goes on and the OSS becomes more and more convinced of the utility of working with Catholic institutions, they understandably get more and more frustrated at the extent of American anti-Catholicism because they're working with Catholic folks abroad who are trying to get them to, you know, work with the United States. And a lot of these Catholic folks are like, you know, why would we do that? We know the United States doesn't like Catholics. They hate Catholics. And the OSS has to be like, oh, that's nonsense. That's totally crazy. Right. And then they take the info back home to other folks in the U.S. and like, don't give us this. We hate Catholics. And the OSS is like, no, 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 we don't. Right. We're trying to like sort of push past this. And so they're kind of negotiating in both directions, I think, 
to do what they saw as right advancing sort of superior access to information in the war. One of the other sort of curious things there for the OSS is that when the war wraps up, they're so concerned about the sort of perceived influence of the Vatican on their work that they actually go to the extent of purposefully mislabeling their documents for the archive. So today, right, if you go into the archive, I mean, it's since been cleaned up, but there's records of the still that you can find. They come up with sort of like sort of made up names for some of this, right, that like parts of the Vatican are be codenamed as like different flowers so that right even years later, as people are looking at OSS records, it would not immediately be apparent um, you know, who they were working with. And they only do this in part for the Vatican records, right? Other stuff like country names persist. So there's a big sort of concern about this. And then it all just goes out the window very quickly with the CIA. So the CIA, you know, also works with Catholics, but within 10, 15 years, so much has changed that the CIA moves from being concerned about sort of public awareness of these efforts to literally publicizing it, right? They work with Tom Dooley, one of the stories I talk about in the book. They work with Tom Dooley and others to basically get stories about sort of American Catholic heroism published in as many venues as possible. Um, They fabricate large parts of best-selling books to sort of advance U.S. aims in Southeast Asia. And, you know, they can't advocate for sort of like U.S. government Catholic cooperation enough. And part of that is, of course, because of the sort of national security foreign policy concerns of the agency. But the other big part of it is just the sort of shifting place of Catholicism in American life and how quickly things change after World War II, which, you know, goes well beyond the intelligence community to things like um, Tri-Faith America and, again, a sort of different interest in world religions. Right, yeah, and that kind of leads us perfectly into the next question. While Dooley's books about Vietnam surely helped shape the American opinion on Vietnam, there were other methods the U.S. took in shaping the public opinion on the war, using rhetorics and discourse specifically about protecting religious freedom. Could you talk a bit about the CIA's campaign and how they presented Vietnamese Catholics as empty signifiers that Americans could then see themselves as in Vietnam? Yeah, so in the book, I show how the CIA works to sell America on the idea of intervening in Vietnam. And entry into the Vietnam War had numerous factors. It wasn't monocausal, but one of the things that the CIA did was that they, they, they worked towards this. And one way they did that was through sort of thinking critically about how do you best build sympathy for South Vietnam to American audiences, because this is not you know, sort of building sympathy for West Germany. These are not white people, right? You're talking about a brown-skinned Buddhist-majority country in Southeast Asia that most Americans could not identify on the map. And that's a tall order, right? How do you get Americans to think about, you know, we should potentially be uh, spending American blood and treasure here if necessary? And what they end up doing was sort of deciding, and in part, this is, you know, a command on high from Eisenhower, but what they decide to do is to highlight the Catholic minority, in South Vietnam as sort of a stand-in for Vietnam as a whole. And to argue that what was really at stake in South Vietnam and the Vietnam War as a whole was religious freedom, that Christians 
were being persecuted, right? And there's a really sort of uh, strategic sort of hand-waving going on where, right, Vietnamese Catholics become Christians, right? Which, I mean, of course, right, they are, but this is not necessarily something that would have been taken for granted at the time, that, right, Christian religious freedom is under attack from godless communists, right? And all the Vietnamese want is what Americans can wake up every day and have, which is the freedom of to worship God in the manner of their choosing or something like this. And the kind of, you know, to get to the nitty gritty details a bit, I mean, one of the ways they do this was just through appeals to longstanding racist and orientalist tropes about Asians in the American imagination. So they transform Vietnamese identity into something American audiences could understand, which is, of course, one of the sort of classic moves of an Orientalist discourse, right, is to make the East serviceable to the West, right, to like give it some kind of value so that the West can better understand itself. And in the case of the Vietnamese, a lot of the CIA-backed material talks about Vietnamese as anything but Vietnamese. I mean, of course, right, they're described as Vietnamese, but the way that they're described is through a just, you know, like potpourri of identities that are really kind of curious. So like at various times, they're described as like Texan or Christian or American or Catholic or Jewish. And each of these identities is supposed to highlight something that makes the Vietnamese, you know, a good uh, friend or partner to the United States. And so, for example, some of the like ritual practices that Vietnamese Catholics did are described in books like Tom Dooley's Deliver Us From Evil, which is heavily promoted by the agency as uh, like the, they described it as something like, quote, the liturgical chants of the ancient Hebrews. And there's a lot of work going on there, right? Like there's a lot happening in, in that kind of analogy. And so the Vietnamese become depicted not just as, you know, people desiring religious freedom, but almost something more grand, the kind of spiritual ancestors of the Americans, right? People who aren't in the exact same place or perhaps time period as Americans, but people who are on the same kind of religious journey. And, you know, I mean, this is incredibly, like I said, dismissive uh, dismissive and orientalist and racist and anti-Semitic. It was also fairly effective if we sort of judge from the way that these materials were received and the kind of public sympathy it builds, particularly for Vietnamese Catholics at the very beginning of what will become the American war in Vietnam. As we wrap things up, I see we're running out of time. I wanted to ask what projects you're currently working on. Are you having any lingering questions that remain from Aaron into the wilderness of mirrors or has your work taken a new direction? So I had originally, I've got a couple, uh, projects going on. I'd originally wanted to pursue kind of a spinoff project to this book that relied on additional sort of declassified records that I had been planning uh, to get through the Freedom of Information Act. And I'm going on, I think, year six or seven waiting for those materials. I'm starting to think, you know, that might not be a book two kind of thing. Like perhaps, perhaps before the end of my career, I'll see those documents, but maybe not. So I'm moving away slightly from the CIA, I'm still very much interested in religion and law, religion and national security stuff. The project I'm starting to assemble now has to do with the relationship between religion, national security, and public education more specifically. So my institution, the University of Northern Iowa, our core program is teacher preparation. So about one in four of my students are training to be teachers. And this has really shifted my teaching and research, both to sort of think about it as a um, professionalization opportunity, but also to kind of think about the 
history of the way we talk about religion and public education in the interest that those conversations serve. So uh, one of the things I'm looking at right now is the history of this idea of religious literacy, thinking about being literate in religion, sort of what does that mean? When does that come about? And uh, what purposes does that, what ends does that get put to? So yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on now. That all sounds really fascinating, and I can't wait to read more of that. So thank you, Michael, for being on the show. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. This has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Books Network podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.